friends. Of course, I go by the name of the kid, famous. You and now tuned into the Tim and Friends show. Hello, education, entertainment, coast to coast. Ball it up, call it entertainment. Let's get this started. Uncle Tim, let's start this show in five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Hello, friends. Back for another day, episode nine of Tim and Friends live on Sportsnet, Sportsnet 360, Sportsnet 590, the fan, and take us anywhere. With Sportsnet now, your boy Rowan S.N. Potts would be proud. Friends of the show today include Mike Futa, former Kings, AGM, as the NHL hot stove begins to heat up. John Paul Morosi, as the anticipation for the big league season begins to heat up, as well as Anthony Castro Vance of MLB.com. And every year we do it, get you set for your bracket, even if you know nothing about college basketball, we got you covered. Ken Palm, Ken Pomeroy is the dude to help you fill out your bracket as the NCAA tournament gets underway with the first four uh, right, about, right about now. First round madness starts tomorrow at the legendary Hinkle Fieldhouse in Indianapolis. And speaking of ball, Toronto Raptors lost their sixth straight game last night in Detroit, despite returning Fred Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam, among others. It was remarkably close, even though Freddie, Pascal, and Kyle Lowry were combined 7 of 37 from the floor. How in the good name of Charlie Villanueva did they keep it that close? Four words, Norm Powell. Norman was hotter than a ghost pepper. A 40-piece, 43 to be exact, on 18 shots. He was 14 of 18 from the field, 8 of 12 from three, and all Raptors Twitter could talk about was what the 43 does to his trade value. Yes, sell high. Man, this one's so intriguing. He's averaging over 30 a game in six March matches. A player option for next year at $11.6 million, he's going to get a raise. But should the Raptors be the ones that pay the man? Let me teeth this from Michael Grange, who manipulated basketball reference enough to tell me that Norm is one of just four players in the league to take a 200 threes over the last two years and have a true shooting percentage of over 650. Those are the best shooters in the game. And Norm not only shoots it, he gets to the rim. There are going to be a lot of calls into Bobby Webster. Sign him, trade him, or he could walk. This could come to a head real soon. And oh yeah, stat of the day from the NBA. On top of the Norm Powell, should you trade him, should you keep him, and all that stuff. The Brooklyn Nets are tied for top spot in the East. And the big three of Durant, Kyrie, and Harden have played a grand total of seven games together. We might have to talk Harden for MVP again. All right, Hockey Central, another 6.30 Eastern start tonight. First to six in the North, separated by nine points after last night. One to four, separated by just six points. And two of them play tonight. Jets in Edmonton to face the Oilers, which is one of ten games in the league tonight. Connor McDavid coming off another three-point night. My God, he now has 56 points in 32 games. That's just a 144-point pace in an 82-game schedule. I'll ask Mike Fuda if we are taking this for granted coming up on Tim and Friends. But first, we take it back for First Things First. First Things First. First. What is the CFL if it's not Canadian? 
It's the question every football fan in this country should be asking themselves after Stephen Brunt came on this very show on Monday and told us that the CFL was much further down the road with the XFL than just talking about talking. Until then, most of the chatter centered around a collab between the two and people pontificating on what it could be. Well, kids... What's being talked about isn't just shared analytics or best practices. It's a merger. It's a sustainable business model and potentially the loss of the three-down game, the ratio, the 55-yard line, and the 20-yard end zones, essentially everything that makes it Canadian football. But please, don't get this twisted. I'm Canadian. I love football. So, yes, I love the NFL, and, yes, Even here at Rogers, I love the CFL. I've covered the game on both sides of the border, multiple Super Bowls, multiple Grey Cups. If you don't know, now you know. And I firmly believe that the Canadian game is better than the American game. In fact, I don't even think it's debatable. No fair catches, the motion, the one yard off the ball. Hell, even the rouge forces actual gameplay. And most folks who study this thing for a living, agree. But if you still need convincing, just go back and watch the 2013 Iron Bowl and tell me how you know the ruse sucks. 56-yarder. It's got, no, does not have the leg. And Chris Davis takes it in the back of the end zone. He'll run it out to the 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 45. There goes Davis. Oh, my God. Davis is going to run it all the way back. Auburn's going to win the football game. Auburn's going to win the football game. Holy cow. Oh, my God. Auburn wins. Oh, my Lord in heaven. They're not going to keep him off the field tonight. And if you don't know what the Iron Bowl is or haven't watched the CFL, ignorance is not a defense. Yep, that Auburn, Chris Davis play in all of its excitement, that's the CFL. RPO, run pass option, taking over the NFL. Decades old in the CFL. Short athletic quarterbacks, CFL. Attacking the edges, CFL. Short high percentage passes, Bill Walsh and the CFL. Undersized slot receiver, the Pats and the CFL. Little burners on the edges, CFL. What does this all mean? Well, that all helped the evolution of, I don't know, Drew Brees, Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray, Julian Edelman, Antonio Brown. Hell, 20 years ago, Lamar Jackson was just a CFL quarterback. But if I can't convince you of this, how the hell are we going to convince Americans to change the game they think they own? It's a question you have to ask yourself. If the XFL and CFL is indeed a merger, do you really think they're going to play the Canadian game? And if you're still questioning the sanity behind it, I get it. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And the CFL tried American expansion before. And the lasting memory was less Baltimore Stallions and more the poor man's John Tesh. That's right. Your boy, Dennis Casey Parks. With growing hearts we see the rise The true and strong and free From far and wide, oh, can
Canada, we stand on guard for thee. From far and wide, O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. God, keep our land glorious and free. O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. Oh, Canada. Finish strong, though. Three years in a cloud of dust, a couple of Sacramento gold miner or Las Vegas posse references later, most diehard CFL fans thought they were thankfully done with the American pipe dream. Just the memory of Louis Pasaglia's game-winning field goal with Canadian flags draped all over BC Place and the memory of just how we defended the true football north, strong and free. Highest-rated game ever to that point. TSN came along, took Friday Night Football, built a great product. If you don't know, the Grey Cup is now among the top 10 most watched TV shows in this country almost every year. Brand new buildings in Winnipeg, revamped in Ottawa, Regina. It's proof we're good, right? Hold on just a second, diehards. That saying I busted out for American expansion, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it, That might just reference to what happened after the failed U.S. expansion. Many of us who knew this league was worth having, worth keeping Canadian, only came when it was threatened by the posse or the pirates of Shreveport. But a generation later, there are many who have forgotten that. Sure, there are parts of this country where the game has thrived. I once stood out in front of Taylor Field with Ron Lancaster on game day. It was like standing with the Pope in front of the Vatican. One of the highlights of my career. But it's time that Saskatchewan and parts of Western Canada and all of the little pockets that love the CFL get a look at the forest from the trees. The game is dying in Toronto and Vancouver. And Montreal has hit the skids. And those are the three biggest markets in Canada. The league needs to find a sustainable future and not an every five-year bailout. Add a pandemic on top. And what the hell did you think we were going to do. When CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosio went hat in hand to the federal government and asked for $150 million, he was nearly laughed out of the country. He came on this show and others to say maybe that was the wrong approach or the wrong headline. There was a media pile-on, there was a sports fan pile-on, and perception was just as important as reality. I get it. Even though others got hefty handouts, the CFL left empty-handed. And to make matters worse, the ask looked bad. But the end result was even worse than that perception. By some accounts, the league lost 60 to $80 million last year and stared down the pipe of whatever the heck this year is going to be. How much more can they lose? I'm here to tell you, not much more. And I'm no rocket surgeon. So if you're forced to choose between the XFL slash CFL, or no football at all in Canada, what do you choose? 
If we have to choose between the history of the Ticats, the Rough Riders, and the Bombers playing four-down football or nothing at all, what will you choose? Listen, it's all well and good that there are people that are yelling and screaming about what the Canadian Football League means to them and how we need the ratio to ensure there are Canadians on the field, that we need the 55-yard line, or that we need three downs. What I'm telling you is, it might be too late. The pandemic has expedited the demise of many things that we have grown up with, that we love, and I'm afraid that we waited too long to express our love and support for something that means so much to so many Canadians. And whether you like it or not is something that is distinctly our own. Even if you hated the CFL, admit it. You turn on the Grey Cup and you see the snow falling, you smile. I know I do. Look around. Every day we see things that make us distinctly Canadian dying by the minute. From radio and TV to mom and pop shops in the middle of town getting washed away by powerful American brands. And given all that, you have to wonder, is the Canadian Football League next? You also have to wonder if we'll learn to regret it or embrace it. First things first. First. It's a culture thing, but it's also an economic thing. And I know there are a lot of passionate opinions and a lot who could care less about the CFL. Our digital producer, Jesse Rubinoff, joins the fray. As the first friend of the day... Jesse, what's your CFL take? And be honest, I'm a big boy, I can take it. How is the XFL the answer here? This is a league that failed twice, and now because The Rock is involved, we're supposed to consider the XFL is supposed to be a viable partner for a league like the CFL. The CFL, when it's not in a pandemic environment, mm -hmm. is a relatively stable league is it though they have markets where it's extremely popular mm -hmm. and i understand now there are extreme difficulties like a lot of businesses across this country but the answer is going to be the xfl a, a league that's not even really a league right now all it is is a bunch of trademarks and that's it money and money well we don't that's the difficulty with this conversation is because we don't know exactly what the financials are going to be right when it comes to some sort of partnership or merger but in my mind if they go and play football down south, if it's the XFL and CFL and they merge in some way, mm -hmm. there's no way they're playing three-down football in the States. Could they create no way. a better sustainable model, I think is the question that the CFL is looking at when it comes to the XFL. Right. With all the markets and American TV and not just Canadian TV, is there a more stable economic model? But why would people watch a merger of the XFL and CFL if they weren't watching the XFL, which was four-down football already. But right? they have a TV deal. Right. That's so, where the money comes from in this business, right? Right. So if there's money coming into the XFL, there's money. All right, let, let's bring in another voice into the equation. I don't want to sit here and argue with Jesse. <laughs> I know he's a hockey guy, but he's also a Canadian sports fan and a former Henry Carr Crusader, as well as a former <laughs> AGM of the Los Angeles Kings. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Mike Fierda. How are you, Tim? How are you, buddy? Yeah, I, feel, I feel this is like 
this is like bucket list stuff for me. What are you talking about? Coming on with, coming on with you, I tell you, I mean, I've always loved the show. Nice. I mean, and honestly, the amount of people when I said I was coming on, the pressure that goes with it, <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, I have to be, I have to be, uh, how would you say it? I've got to be as better looking than Sid and funnier than Ken Reed, and, <laughs> well, half, and half of that's attainable. <laughs> don't, yeah, don't put that kind of pressure on. But better looking than Sid is real easy. Um, <laughs> let me let me ask you this, just as a sports fan, we're gonna get into hockey, but as a sports fan, like you played. In Germany, you played in Denmark. They support every sport, a professional league, even if it's not the top-rated league. Do you have an affinity to the CFL even though you're a hockey guy? My first job, I delivered the stats for a company called Gestetner at Exhibition Stadium for the Argonauts. So it was, for me... The, the thrill of being going down to the dressing room after, and it was truly Canadian. My, well, first of all, my father was an all-Canadian at Queen's University, tight end, so go. he coached football, so that was something that uh, was close to my heart. But then to be able to watch some of the players that came up through, like the Oshawa Hawkeyes and Canadian, and I still remember staying after hours to watch Bobo Bovilovich, uh, you know, Terry Greer, Connage right. Hallway. That was my... The glory years, right? Was, yeah, Bob Bronk. It was, like, it was unbelievable how much I enjoyed it. And again, to see have two teams named the Rough Riders. Like, that was a big thing when I went to the States. <laughs> yeah. I would just get grilled by the guys when I'd sit there, and they'd say, you guys can't even, you guys can't even come up with two it's, nicknames it for your team. teams, and two of them are named the Rough Riders. Yeah. But yeah. it was, uh, no, I was very passionate about it, and I mean, I was there the, the last Grey Cup at the Exhibition Stadium, uh, and it was just an amazing, amazing feeling. Do you think that it's important for Canada to have something like that? If it's important to one Canadian, it's important. I, I, I But I do, I agree with Jesse, this whole... This whole thing reeks of the WWE and The Rock and that same failed atmosphere. And right. the one I listened to a big show about it, and the biggest thing that kind of came is that they don't have fields the size of the Canadian football fields that they want to play on in the states. So it's it's not gonna it's not gonna swing the border if they don't they don't have that where you can throw the eighty yard screen pass. Right. It's like it's just it's just fun to watch, and it's it, it is it's our it's our thing. The three downs is our it's our game, and yeah. obviously the fact that Canadians play it. And if they're going to limit all that stuff, it's, 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 not, it's not fun. It's not fun. All right, we brought you in to talk a little hockey, not football. And I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, I, I happened to grab myself an old – you're a Rexdale kid. And I grabbed myself an old Henry Carr Crusaders jersey from my brother's old bag in the basement <laughs> and brought it in studio. Did you notice that we had the Henry Carr Crusader jersey up in here for Honestly, you? Honestly, yeah. As soon as I came in, I was I had to, I did a triple take. <laughs> I did a triple take because I'm used to seeing all the uh, the NHL stuff, but that brings back a, a lot of fond memories. We had a really a hockey academy. Peter Miller and Dan Cameron were my coaches and. We won a lot of championships. A lot of scholarships came from it, and it was a—it was like a hockey institute. We were—we would go head to head with St. Mike's. That was our biggest rival. Yeah. And I mean the Bramley Blues with the Tricky Ricky Hay and all that stuff. But it was—it's a blast seeing it up there. It's unfortunate they've got a great football pro- program and yeah. basketball program and track and field program, but the hockey program was mothballed. Uh, but a lot of great memories. I—I uh, I feel like right now. Didn't didn't you work for the St. Mike's Buzzers after going <laughs> to Henry Carr? You well, when I blew—I blew out my shoulder. I was playing in Germany, and yeah. I came back and. Uh, and I was hired by Dennis Mills to run the, the Junior B program, the buzzer. So there right. was honestly like, when I walked into that school, it was like I needed police protection from the staff because <laughs> the, but I got in there and they actually, uh, they turned the program into the OHL St. Mike's majors. And that was my, in, in through the door. I uh, was the youngest head coach in the history of the Ontario Hockey League and 
getting out shot 60 to 10 every night. <laughs> it was a, it was truly I knew what the true expansion team was, but yeah. it was a it was it was great for me because it opened up a it opened up a door for me that I was never going to let close again, and it led to a great career in the National Hockey League. All right, well there's the background of Mike Fuda, and I know we're going to talk hockey. We're going to do a smoke or fire, and we're going to try and figure out how these guys can figure out this pandemic and the trade deadline. But I know you wanted to talk about Grace Bowen and appeal to our need uh, to support the great children's hospitals in this in this city and across our country. Yeah, tell me about it, Grace. Well. First of all, it's hard to talk about Grace without getting emotional. I mean, I, I think I have a new respect for the players that used to have to go and, uh, you know, they did the hospital visits, and this yeah. was kind of commonplace for them. But for me, we were playing the Leafs, and I walked into the lobby, and there was this little vision of glory. She had a Kings jersey on, a um, little bald head, and she just literally lit up the room, and her foot was on upside down. And I asked her dad, you know, when she said, well, when she had her surgery, she was a huge hockey player, so she uh, wanted it so she could play sledge hockey. And I, she just she just gravitated. I mean, Justin Williams introduced me to her, and then her dream was to see a Kings game. I took her out on a couple of dates and stuff like that, and then uh, we uh, ended up getting her down, flying her down, and she was the honorary puck drop. Uh, it was Barry Melrose night, so I have this un- unbelievable passion for Barry for stepping aside and knowing that time was of the essence, allowing Grace to to drop the puck. So they were honoring Barry Melrose. It was Barry, it was Barry Melrose Legends Night, but we were running out of time for a bunch of different reasons to right. get her down there. So she flew down with her, with um, with Greg, her father, and, and Andrea and Mackenzie. Her sister. This is a wonderful family, but right. she dropped the puck. Uh, Mark Giordano was the captain for the Flames, so that made another touch for me right, with, my, with my with uh, my own sound guy. And yeah. then uh, and uh, Justin Williams was our honorary captain. So she dropped the puck that night. She sat there. Every time there was a stoppage of play, they'd show her on the board, and 18,000 people would get up and scream grace. And, yeah. and that was, she was the cloud support. And she came back, and unfortunately, uh, she, she lost her battle with cancer. And, uh, and Justin asked me to uh, uh, deliver the eulogy at the uh, funeral in Coburg, and it was a, it was a tough time for me. Uh, she had my little angel pendant on. It was an open casket, which was something I didn't expect. Right. But it just it just gave me a, any time, like, stuff goes on. Like, I hear the passion that you speak with yeah. uh, about the pandemic and stuff like that. And I always told my daughters, um, who I've got three little girls, right. Hunter, Carmen, and Devin, that um, it's, it's any time you feel any kind of adversity that you think you've got real adversity, think of grace. Right. Uh, think of Grace, and it's such a fitting name because of Amazing Grace. And I mean, I know the family. It was the I spoke about it on Sportsnet. It was the anniversary of her passing this past Saturday, and it's a tough time for them. But uh, just the fact that you guys can—they've raised so much money for Grace, and she's such an incredible. I mean, I know that's how I met Haley Wickenheiser, and Ryan Reynolds is involved as well. But it's just a—it's really a emotional thing, and for anybody that's gone through it, it's. It's like nothing you can even fathom, but it's this is real adversity, and they're a special family. Uh, the Grace Bowen Tribute Fund, if you want to look it up on uh, Google, in support of sick kids, and it reminds me of a story of another friend of the show, Faisal Kamisa, who went through his own cancer story. Yeah. And I don't know if you know this, but Faisal, while he was in Sick Kids Hospital, they did a tour. And who comes through but his favorite hockey player, Matt Sundin. And then a couple years ago, Faisal's doing a hit from the studio. Guess who he's doing it with? Matt Sundin, and they showed the picture of Faisal meeting him, same way that Grace met you, bald, standing there a little thin, and then you see the next picture, Matt Sundin, Faisal Kamisa at 25, hosted here. So they do such great work, and it's not just sick kids in Toronto, all across this country at children's hospitals. It's just amazing the work that they do. Yeah, like the Make-A-Wish Foundation, like you hear even, I've heard, I think John Cena, the amount of 
he's got the world like the record for the most make a wish visits oh, and stuff that's and, awesome, yeah. and it's like again it's you see this see them as athletes and sometimes you know you talk about them being overpaid and stuff but the ones that give back and do that selflessly uh behind the scenes with the, those children it's just something to behold uh, Mike Feuda, Justin Williams, Haley Wickenheiser, Ryan Reynolds, uh, almost what it means to be Canadian, to lend a hand when you can. Uh, look up a children's hospital in your area. Donate time, money, whatever you can, if you can. Uh, time for a break. Still to come, Ken Palm, John Morosi, Anthony Castro-Vance. But coming up next, this guy's sticking around. NHL deadline might be one of the quietest in recent memory. Or will teams have to get creative to give themselves a shot? at Lord Stanley's Grail. We'll ask Mr. Feuda on the flip side, live from Toronto, this is Tim and Friends. Attacking the paint, little quick sit dribble, and knocks it home, and turning out the lights on Doc Rivers. Yes, yeah, sit down. This is my court. The Rangers lead 5-0, and now a shorthanded breakaway for Zibanejad. Moving it on Hort, he scores! Rangers nine, Flyers nothing after 40 minutes. It's now for Barry with a pass, tipped across, they score! That little play by Dreisaitl has set up Cahoon right through his legs. He can't do it any better than that. Strike to claim it, a strike to claim it, and he got it! That, that is it! That is why I did it! That's number five! Are you kidding me? That's right! Who do you think you are? I am! It's Tim and Friends. It's live coast to coast. And the first friend of the day outside my digital producer, Jesse Rubinoff, is Mike Fuda. Is that? I'm looking at your pocket square, and I know it's tough to see on radio. <clears throat> but is that a Ken Reed hockey card? Ken Reed rookie card. I have a total <laughs> bromance going on with this guy. I met him two weeks ago. I feel like I've known him my entire life. Like we're texting each other at night asking, what did you other eat? <laughs> it's like, it's unbelievable. He's such, he's, he's like the comfort level of talking to you, but we've, we've we really hit it off. So, uh, Nice. Well, Kenny's a, Kenny's a good friend of the show. Yeah. And uh, he, he kind of sort of likes hockey. I don't know if you can tell. My old he's, man goes, my old I, man goes, why do, you, why do I like that Ken Reed so much? One, because he's likable. And two, because he has genuine enthusiasm for what he's doing. Oh, my God. The passion. And he lo- like, yeah. he's got to get out. Like, the, the fighting is like everything. He's like, that's what he's texting me. Oh, Cashin's got to fight now. He's got to fight now. And I'm like, oh, I think if they ever took ho- fighting out of hockey, he would oh, know Kenny Reed would Kenny be pissed. He would be problematic. Yeah. He would be problematic. But I couldn't figure the other day you had him on, I think he had his, uh... oh, <laughs> it was the other day you had on, he was dressed like Alvis Costello, though. I thought he looked a little more like Austin Powers. Oh, yeah, the turtleneck and the glasses. <laughs> kind of he had like... her going, but no, that's one good Canadian there. That's for sure. I mentioned that uh, for a while you were the assistant GM in Los Angeles, so you kind of sort of know this Daryl Sutter guy in Calgary. And at first blush, I was like, man, why is Calgary bringing Daryl Sutter back? And then I started to think about way, the way the division plays. It kind of seemed like fire wagon hockey. And if you're going to roll the dice, that's a great place to roll the dice with a guy who's going to play the exact opposite of everyone else right now <laughs> and pin it down and try and get his systems to, 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 to protect Markstrom a little bit. What did you think of the hire, and how do you think he'll affect this Calgary team? Well, I, I loved it. He's one of my best friends in the game, obviously. When Dean Lombardi, the similarities are so great between when we did it. When Dean Lombardi made the callback, we were in ninth place looking on the outside, looking in, and 
sometimes coaching changes. Like I, I said, this is, wasn't a knock on the guy Montreal hired. Like, I think he's going to be a great coach, but it was the same kind of voice, the same guy. He's been on the bench. They've heard the voice. Right. I call it like a nuclear option. Like Brad Trelving just <laughs> right. brought in a different voice altogether. Like this, there is nobody like Daryl Sutter as far as the presence that he brings. Both of our Stanley Cups, I felt our first Stanley Cup, he was pretty much the captain of the team. Like he just, we went from a, a great defensive-minded coach and Terry Murray to all of a sudden you had this man that had such a presence about him. Uh, and he, you know, he's... There's some language used around there. There's, there's, <laughs> yeah. there's some, some interesting dialogue that he has with the players to get it out of him, but he gets it out of him. And what I thought with Calgary is this was a huge thing. I talked to Brad Trelving about it, and I thought this was the only guy you could hire because it was very similar. Uh, the, Cal- the Calgary core has this kind of underachieving aspect to them. Mm-hmm. And to bring in another voice, but to bring in a nuclear option, first of all, he's going to get the most out of them. Uh, And secondly, they're going to find out whether that core has it in them because they just might not have it in them. But you will find out with Daryl Sutter behind the bench. And uh, he's one special individual. And again, I probably talked to him more after we left the Kings. (laughs) It's just where he's very, you, you, uh, when you're working with Daryl, you don't ask a lot of questions of him (laughs) when he wants to talk to you. Yeah, Yeah, he puts his hand on you. It's like a (laughs) two-by-four. Like he's got that farmer strength, but he's very passionate. There's a time you walk past him where he doesn't ask how your family and how your daughters are. And he's got a heart of gold, but he's uh, he's all business, and that's what the Calgary Flames are going to get out of him. All right, I'm just thinking about my my 10-year-old son who probably doesn't remember, but when you brought him into L.A., you guys did okay. Right out of the gate. We yeah. went from ninth to eighth. And it's funny because I, I look at some of these teams. I know we talk about the, the, the Leafs. I'm going to talk about the Leafs. But some, the Vancouver Canucks that year, had they had an asterisk on their soul. Like, they didn't have any more important games. They had run away with the division. Right. We had to play like it was your yeah. the war, war time was on the yeah. line. So we were so battle prepared by the time the playoff series started that although we were the eighth seed, we felt we were more we'd, – we'd played more hard, difficult games than the – then the Canucks had, and we ended up we blew them right off the ice. I mean, it wasn't even right. close series, and it took on, it took on a whole new dynamic. But it was all because of that gentleman right there. <laughs> that gentleman right there is one pleasure, and his son Chris as well, who's uh, he used to come and dance at our games. He's a special, special, yeah. special kid as well. Yeah, he is. All right, well, uh, we're gonna do this thing called uh, smoke or fire with you. And uh, it's an interesting deadline, to say the least. And I know that teams are going to have to get creative. And I don't know if those uh, hour-long, or hour-long, hours-long shows on Sportsnet and TSN will have enough trades to help them out those days. <laughs> but uh, we'll see. With Smoke or Fire, Jesse Rubinoff is going to lead us through. Yeah, let's have some fun. Let's have some fun with this. Smoke or Fire. So let's begin with the Nashville Predators. And all signs are pointing to them becoming prey at the deadline. Elliot Friedman thinks the Preds are looking for a Muzzin-like package of a couple prospects and a first-rounder for Matthias Ekholm, a deal, of course, Mike's very familiar with. If rumors are to be believed, Ekholm will be just the first domino to drop for the Predators before the deadline. In other words, there will be a fire sale in Nashville. Smoke or fire, Mike? Fire. 100%. I just think this... Nashville, I mean, I, I talked to a reporter in Nashville a couple weeks ago about um, the rebuild. The, the rebuild. And I, for me, there's a rebuild, and then there's a rebuild when you've got banners hanging. And Nashville's played a lot of playoff hockey, but they've never really got... They haven't won yet. Yep. And I think right now, where they sit, there's some very important pieces, and I do believe they've got it right with... Uh, well, Elliot's so good at picking up these scoops, but I, I think it's a first-round pick. We, we traded Jake Muzzin. When it was Muzzin, it was a first-round pick. And it was Granstrom and, um, and Sean Dursey. So it was two 
good prospects. I believe that Nashville, because uh, Ekholm has a year left on his term as well, I think he's got one more year left at 3.75, so he's not a rental. That it's going to be, it's going to be a first-round pick, and it's going to be two top players. Or I've heard they want to push it out two years because some teams are a little concerned that they're not going to get enough scouting views on the top picks this year. So yeah. 2022 might be a better year to get your picks. So they're looking at a first, a second, huh. and a third as well. I think the Winnipeg Jets are big players there. I personally think the Leafs should be big players there. Um, and I've heard the Boston Bruins are very, very much involved. But Ekholm's a big one. I know Granlin's somebody they're looking at moving as well. The Forsberg thing, I think that's going to take a piece out of your lineup to get a guy like Forsberg. Let's so, get to, yeah. So there's fire in Nashville. There's fire. fire. We got one fire, fire sale coming. Fire. Uh, let's go to the Canadian content. How about Leafs GM Kyle Dubas, who said this week he's ready to go all in and his top prospects could be in play if the right deal is there. It's more than just a rumor if it came from Dubas himself, but are the Leafs really willing to trade top prospect capital to make a run this season? Smoke or fire, Mike? Blazing fire. Blazing fire. Blazing Here we fire. go. That Get show? that graphic Blazing up there. Blazing fire. fire. <laughs> the other show is a hot seat. There's a league. <laughs> this should be really Buffalo is the place that most of the fires are, right? That's right. For real. But there's, this is fire. Coral armor. This is a fire. And Kyle can see it. I mean, it, I truly believe that the A games that the Leafs produced against the Edmonton Oilers this year, yep. nobody nobody around the league has matched that quality of performance. And there are some great teams that, that they haven't seen yet that have that been their nemesis in the past. But when you look at this roster, first of all, I see, I look at Wayne Simmons, who is playing his best hockey. Uh, I almost look like that's a trade acquisition because he's been out for so long. Right, when he comes he back. comes back. And I think Jack Campbell is a guy that if, if Freddie drops the ball, Jack's going to be right there to pick it up. So I think they've got two pieces that haven't been in the lineup that are going to be huge. But there is not a prospect. Last When we did the Muzzin trade, Kyle made it quite clear there was probably three or four guys at the time. Like Sandine was not available, right. uh, for example. I don't think there is anybody on their prospect list. Whoop that is uh, untouchable but this year. Does the cap room make it tough to make well, this deal? Well, I think, Kyle, I mean, he's probably going to have to identify a player that uh, that they're going to have to move off the roster, and I'm not going to leave the name. Everybody knows the name that's getting bannered around, but they're going to have to move some salary out, and the other team's probably going to have to eat some salary to make it happen. But that's why the added assets Understood. are going to be huge. But I don't think for one second if Kyle has a chance, and again, uh, for me, a guy like a Tanner Pearson is a great fit. Again, I... Having drafted him, I just know being an Ontario-based kid who has got playoff, he's got a Stanley Cup ring. I think um, somebody, I think uh, Borny the other day was saying how they need some more penalty killers. There's another guy on a good salary that kills penalties. He's got a little bit more trends to the Hyman side than the than the Nylander side. But, uh, I mean, I, he's another great fit. I don't think the price would be as much. I think he'd probably be a second-round pick. But, again, it's going to be trying to fit these salaries in. All right, less than a minute left. All that smoke from Fuda is fire, Jesse. You got one more? We got two fires, and why don't we go from the Leafs to the Montreal Canadiens with D-man Ben Sherratt out six to eight weeks. The Habs have a bit of a dilemma. If Sherratt returns before the end of the year, they wouldn't have enough cap space to add another blue liner at the deadline, but if they can clear a bit of space, Renault Lavoie threw out Eric Branson as a good fit. Wouldn't have to deal with a quarantine in that situation, of course, so smoke or fire, the Habs will find a way to add to their blue line. Uh, mm, little... Bic light, Bic lighter. That's a cap situation. It's a tough one. Uh, I think they're a good team. I mean, I don't. I see Edgar Branson. The amount of I think the pace would struggle a little bit with. Right. Like he's been exposed a little More bit. And a character guy. Toughness is great, but I mean, a little bit of the speed factor has been exposed there in Ottawa. But in general, I think they're going to do the best to add somebody. But uh, 
Not as much blazing fire. So we'll as the call first it. You two. want to call it smoke? We got the graphic up there for you. <laughs> yeah. Little, Look at that beautiful little, thing. Not a ton <laughs> That's of better. smoke. Not not a, a little smoke. bit of smoke. Little of smoke. sparks. Yeah. Little sparks little for Ben Sherratt. Uh, can I call you Futsi? Is that the is that the hockey you, name? You, you, is you, know, that, you actually you, you've have got I graduated a, you've to got that level? Full, you've actually the only one that's ever called me that. I've taken some. What's the hockey nickname? It's Futs, but Futsi really. You know what? You can you you can get away. You can actually you can get away with that, but because. Now I'm wearing makeup and I'm getting called Futsy. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be some serious issues. And going you on. got a Ken Reed pocket square. I got square. a Ken Reed pocket that, square. That is the Tim masculinity friend. is being challenged. But uh, I'll, for you, I'll be Futsy. Uh, You're my, I'm your friend. Right you can call here. Me you want. That is a Tim and friend trifecta. Thanks for doing this, my guy. What an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Right. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Mike. Uh, all right, time for break. When we come back, March Madness officially underway with the first four. If you need some last minute help with your bracket, we have just the guy. Ken Pomeroy. Yes, uh, that's right, kids. Famous Ken Palm rankings. He'll give you some bracketology. Next! Futsy. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> Welcome back to Tim and Friends here on the Sportsnet family of channels coast to coast. March Madness is here. First playing game has tipped the first four underway. Round one proper gets going tomorrow. So the countdown to get your bracket in already on. And after a year off, the excitement among ball fans and gamblers alike feels even bigger. For years now, around this time, we have reached out to our next guest to discuss his rankings and maybe help you out with your bracket. He is the creator of the website chempom.com, which uses statistics and data such as possession by possession, tempo free stats to create his own unique ranking system, which has become a respected staple throughout the college basketball world. KenPalm.com's Ken Pomeroy joins us now via Zoom. Ken, thank you as always for doing this. Yeah, it's great to be back on, Tim. I missed you last year. And we, and we got you jumped on the Zoom here. Let me just compliment you. As a bald man, the pandemic hair is wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, you never know. I, I don't take my hair for granted. And uh, <laughs> certainly this was an opportunity to, to really uh, grow it out and see what it looked like. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably get ripped on social media, but uh, you know, Who cares? Too bad, I don't think. Who yeah. cares? We all know how to deal with that. All right, let's jump right into it. And as a UNLV fan growing up, Ken, I know how hard it is to go undefeated throughout the year, but Mark Fuse Gonzaga team is as good as they come, aren't they? Yes, this is, you know, really one of the best teams of the last 25 years. Um, just, you know, a dominating regular season. Obviously, playing in the West Coast Conference, they don't play, a, you know, a ton of difficult teams there. But their non-conference schedule was uh, was pretty much loaded. And, and you know, they dealt, you know, with like Bill Self, his worst defeat that, you know, he's ever seen. And uh, Tony Bennett at Virginia was one of the worst defensive performances that they had ever had. So uh, so it was, a, it was a pretty impressive run for Gonzaga. You know, it's funny because I think of the pressure that the undefeated season, and they're trying to be the first since Indiana in the 70s to do it and win a national title. I think of that pressure, and I also think of the offset of not having crowds in the stands. Off the top of the dome, I wonder, in your models, has the lack of a crowd, because I would think that would affect young kids maybe even more than it would pros, has that changed the variances on your models and on your numbers at all? Yeah, it's changed the home court advantage. So, uh, you know, in a normal season, uh, non-conference teams or conference teams would win about 60% of their home games. 
Uh, this season, they won about 57.5%. So uh, there was less of a home court advantage. It wasn't completely nullified, though. And uh, fortunately, before the season started, I you know, kind of assumed that obviously home court advantage would be less. I, I took a stab and thought it'd be about two and a quarter points as opposed to the normal three and a quarter. And it ended up coming out to be about 2.35. So you know, formula, you know, pretty close in the ballpark. So pretty, pretty well. damn close. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Uh, the Big Ten uh, will present um, a real interesting dynamic to all this because they are, I mean, Illinois, Michigan, Iowa, Purdue, all near the top of the bracket. Does that strength sometimes mess with the numbers a little bit because the conference was so heavy? Yeah, that, that was the real challenge this year was that we didn't have as many non-conference games as we normally would. So the right. Big Ten, you know, played 20, a 20 game conference schedule, you know, they played two or three games in, in, in their conference tournament and they played basically five or six non-conference games. And so trying to distinguish between conferences is definitely a little bit more of a challenge. There's less of a sample size to do that. Um, that said, I think it's it's pretty clear the Big Ten is the best league in the country. The Big 12 is the second best league. It's just right now my ratings say, you know, the Big Ten is just on a completely different level. And uh you know, I'm not as confident about that. Certainly the tournament will be a great indicator as to, to whether that's true or not. I look at Purdue and I wonder if they might be one of those teams that might be able, like just because of where they were in that Big Ten, some of the experience they have on that team. What do your numbers say about Purdue? Yeah, it likes them. It really, yeah. uh, you know, it, 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 they're, those, those types of teams, Purdue, Wisconsin, you know, you look at Purdue, they're 13th in my system. Uh, Wisconsin is 11th. They're actually 10th before last night, but flip-flop with some NIT action. But, uh, you know, those are both you know, two teams that basically, you know, took a lot of losses in Big Ten play. They're playing Michigan. They're playing Indiana. Or they're playing uh, Illinois. They're playing Iowa. Um, right. uh, and suffering losses. So the record doesn't look great. But, uh uh, those are the teams that are really going to test the formula and, and determine, hey, is the Big Ten really that great of a league? Are those teams much better than the top teams in other leagues? You know, we'll find that out pretty soon. Ken Palm joining us here on uh, Tim and Friends. I, I, I shorten it to Ken Palm. How many people shorten it to Ken Palm? <laughs> is that is that disrespectful? I feel like a jerk now that I've said it. No, you're totally cool. <laughs> All right. For a while it was weird, but now I've uh, started to embrace it, and even my, <laughs> my friends call me Ken Palm. So like, All right. <laughs> Ken Pomeroy joining us here on Tim and Friends. <laughs> who, who in your mind did the selection – committee get the most wrong when it comes to seeding good or bad well you know the selection committee had a super easy job this year in that respect uh the you know the top four seeds you really couldn't argue uh they were clearly the four best teams in the country by the time it got to the end of the season uh the next two teams uh, the next uh four teams were pretty clear as well you know the next four, uh the two seeds so you really couldn't screw that up either so so I, you know I guess one team I look at is, is like UConn. Uh, they uh, are a seven seed uh, in the East. And, uh, you know, if you look at their whole resume, they probably were like a seven seed. But, uh, you know, they have this kid, James Booknight, who's one of the best NBA prospects uh, in the tournament. And he missed about eight games in the middle of the season. Once they got him back, uh, they played very, very well. And, uh, you know, they probably played more like a three or a four seed than a seven seed. Okay, keep looking at our rankings here, and I keep thinking of Sister Jean. What about Loyola Chicago? <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my ratings love Sister Jean. They love Loyola Chicago. Uh, you know, ninth in my ratings and, and an eight seed. You don't uh, you don't see that very often. And they got a little bit of a break as well. I don't know if uh, Sister Jean's uh, prayers have uh, had an impact, but uh, Georgia Tech is going to be without their best player in their first-round game, Moses Wright. It would have been a great matchup with their uh, – Big man Cameron Crutwig, who you're seeing, uh, you know, working in the paint here, uh, would have been a great battle there. But uh, Moses Wright is out, so uh, Loyola Chicago, a pretty big favorite in that first game, and then they got a battle, uh, you know, the top seed Illinois in the second game, and uh, 
That could be a, a much more of a tall task. All right, we got about a minute left here. Uh, you mentioned the NBA prospects, and a lot of folks up here uh, don't take in as much college basketball, but they love their NBA basketball. And I look at Oklahoma State and Cade Cunningham. Um, is there a possibility he's the Carmelo Anthony of this year? Uh, there's a possibility, but you know the thing about Oklahoma State is they have had uh, kind of this long run in conference play where they just played a bunch of close games. Didn't matter who they played against, uh, you know whether it was Kansas or Baylor or TCU or Kansas State. Like they they played in close games, and uh, I think that's going to be a real problem for them. My my rating system only has them 30th uh, nationally, so uh, there's certainly a public perception that this is a team that's on fire and they got Kate Cunningham and they can win these close games consistently. And mm. I don't doubt that Kate Cunningham's great in the clutch, and they and they will have some some ability to win close games but you're still just playing with fire when you do that and uh i just don't see oklahoma state making a deep run okay before we let you go who's got the most value in this bracket in your mind about 30 seconds here well i, I think i'd point to uh houston actually i haven't seen a soul pick houston to go to the final four and they're yeah. sixth in my ratings uh, a two seed one of the toughest teams defensively just physically tough but they're a really good offensive team as well they, they're second in the country in offensive rebounding and uh you know a really good perimeter shooting team so uh kind of a sneaky pick certainly a contrarian pick if you pick them to go to the final four i guarantee you like very few people in your office pool are going to do that so if they happen to get there you're going to you're going to make up a lot of ground on people i i, I love the the top 10 offensive and defensive teams and i know they're that in your rankings uh this is always fun thank you very much for doing that with us Thanks so much, Tim. Appreciate it. All right, there is Ken Pomeroy, KenPom.com, a guy who knows exactly what's going on come tournament time. Plenty more baseball talk. John Paul Morosi, Fox Sports, will join me as will Anthony Cashio-Vance. But up next, big game in Edmonton. Oilers and Jets. Gino is my friend next. Thank you, Sheepdogs. Thank you, Raptors PA announcer Mark Strong. Hour two here on Tim and Friends. John Paul Morosi will join me as the guest contributor in a little bit for this second hour. We will talk Jays and all things MLB. Plus, Anthony Castro-Vince joins the conversation as we are exactly two weeks away from opening day. That's right, kids. The summer is on its way, and let's hope the vaccines along with it. But we start with some hockey. Just one game in the North tonight. Ten in the NHL. One in the North. We are fixated on Edmonton. Oilers host the Jets regionally on Sportsnet West. Oilers fresh off an impressive 7-3 thumping of the Flames in the Battle of Alberta 2 electric boogaloo. Well, the Jets pulled within two of the Leafs' top the standings with an overtime win over the Habs last night. With more on tonight's game, let's send it over to one of our favorites, Gene Principe in Edmonton. Gino, how are you, my friend? Hey, Tim, I'm doing great. Nice to nice to see you. Nice to hear from you. And uh, I know it is the uh, North Division, but it feels like the South Division, about 15 degrees uh, Celsius oh, uh, in Edmonton fancy. today. Fantastic nice. day to be outside doing something. Uh, inside tonight is uh, where things will be happening at Rogers Place. Uh, you discussed the fact that Winnipeg and Edmonton are, you know, these two teams have had uh, different results against the top team 
in the North Division, Toronto. Uh, the Leafs came in here and won three straight. A uh, bit of an opposite situation. Winnipeg played the Leafs and had success. And yet, uh, when it boils right down to it, these two teams are, are neck and neck when it comes to chasing the Toronto Maple Leafs for top spot in the North Division. Each of them played last night. Uh, Winnipeg's game, a little bit different uh, than what Edmonton had against Calgary. They took on Montreal. The Canadians came back late. They won it in overtime, Nikolai Ehlers, so they get their two points, and they're not too concerned about the point they, they gave up. Edmonton was looking to rebound after a loss on Monday night against the Calgary Flames and trying to make sure they keep some distance between themselves and the Flames because they'll play ten times this season. They were able to do that. A lead that could have been down to three is now back up to seven. Now, when these two teams meet, uh, this scoreboard is usually lighting up uh, with uh, names, goals, assists, and times. Uh, 33 goals between yeah. these squads in their first four games. Now, you've got two coaches that, that would prefer, Dave Tippett and Paul Maurice, to have things uh, a lot more uh, defensive. But uh, here's the thing. you got Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl and Ryan Nugent Hopkins. you got Tyson Berry, who's leading the NHL in points for defensemen now with 28. Uh, then you go to the other side, and yeah, Josh Morrissey's on the blue line for Winnipeg. Uh, Blake Wheeler up front. Nick Ehlers. Uh, Paul Stashney. And they've got their own talent. Mark Shifley, who's, uh, I think, one of those players that doesn't get, uh, I tell you, I get no respect. Uh, and maybe that's because he's in Winnipeg. Maybe it's not. Yeah. Uh, but it's, there's a load of talent here tonight. Yes. And I foresee Tim this evening being one of those nights where there will be a lot of offense, which I think fans in Winnipeg, Edmonton in the north, and even in the south will enjoy tremendously. You know, it's funny, uh, when the Winnipeg Jets came to Toronto, I was warning Leaf fans, like, this top six is good. They've got firepower throughout, and we saw that here in Toronto. You guys have seen that in Edmonton with the games that the Jets and the Oilers have played this year. But I was saying after last night, Gino, Connor McDavid is on a 144-point yeah. pace over 82 games. He is 14 yeah. points clear of anyone not on the Oilers. Like, I know everyone <laughs> says that this guy is great, but even with his greatness, even with the consensus top player in the world, are we still kind of underselling what he's doing right now? Yeah. Well, you know... Yeah, uh, despite everything you just said, I, I, I think you're right. Uh, he is a guy, I tell you, I got no respect. <laughs> Connor doesn't have to say that because he does get a lot of respect. But uh, we're still, uh, maybe, I don't know if you can undervalue a guy who's won Hart Trophy, Ted Lindsay Awards, Art Ross Trophies. He's 24 years old, and he's kind of reaching the prime of his career. Uh, it, it is amazing. It is, a, it is a pleasure, and I think especially with no fans in the stands, Tim, right. uh, it, it's hard to generate that momentum. But the idea of watching Connor on a nightly basis, and then you throw in Leon. I mean, this is one heck of a one-two punch. And when it comes to Connor, I know sometimes you're always talking about Connor. You're always, well, yeah. uh, you know, how can, how can you not? And I, I laugh because now, we, we, you know, we do the Zoom interviews uh, theoretically through our truck, our TV truck. So you can't get down there beside the guy and ask the questions. And I know Connor, he doesn't like talking about himself. I, I, I know that. We all know that. He loves talking about the team. But, you know, it's hard not to talk about him when he's got a five-point night or he's got a hat trick or he yeah. leads the NHL in scoring and so we continue to talk about him and i think tim we're going to have this conversation for for many more years here's the thing i'll say about connor and leon for that matter and i remember leon saying it uh when he had the 50 goal seasons like listen i would give up goals 
in order for this team to have success in the playoffs in the Stanley Cup. And I, and I think that's where this team will eventually be judged. But it is a true privilege to have a chance, you know, to do this for a living and to cover those two guys on a game-to-game basis. Uh, the pace is historic. The last two to get to 140 points just happened to be Meryl Lemieux and Yaramir Jagr in 1995-96. So that's the company that we're talking about, and that's why we're talking about it so much. Uh, Gino, always a pleasure. Thank you for being a friend. Take care, Paul. Anytime. All right. Be good. There is uh, Gene Principe in Edmonton ahead of the Jets and the Oilers. The PWHPA announcing a partnership with the St. Louis Blues today. The Secret Dream Gap Tour will head to St. Louis on April 11th and play a game at the Enterprise Center on April 12th. The PWHPA has already held games at MSG in New York and the United Center in Chicago and have previously announced a partnership with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Speaking of Toronto, the Blue Jays are enjoying a day off today at the unofficial midway point of camp. There was some news from Dunedin that today, as the team announced, they have assigned 25 players to minor league camp. Among the group are some top prospects who have performed well this spring, including Alec Manoa and Simeon Ridge, uh, Woods Richardson, along with infielders Jordan Groshans and Austin Mark. To the NFL, and the Bills have a new backup quarterback. Mitchell Trubisky goes from the Bears to the Bills. Second overall pick in 2017, ahead of Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson. He went just uh, 29, 21 in four seasons with Chicago. A few more notable signings for you. Former Cardinals running back Kenyon Drake headed to the Raiders in a two-year deal after 10 seasons with the Vikings. Tight end Kyle Rudolph is after the New York football giants. Chargers are replacing Hunter Henry as they get a tight end in Jared Cook on a one-year deal. And former Texans receiver Will Fuller heading to the Dolphins. And if he could ever stay healthy, he is a wonderful pick in any pool. But as a guy who has picked him every year in his pool, he rarely stays healthy. To basketball. And more help is on the way for the Raptors as OG Ananobi returned to practice. So they should be back to full strength, at least in bodies for tomorrow's game against the Jazz. The Raptors have lost six straight despite a career high 43 from Norman Powell in their loss to the Pistons last night. Nick Nurse isn't sure how the lineup will be set once everyone's back. We'll see how it integrates back in there. I'm, I'm more concerned with um, playing, winning basketball. Norm's got the capability to score. I, I, I've known that for a long time. I didn't need to see him score 40, 30, 40, 30. I've known that for a long time. Uh, Fred's got the capability of scoring. Pascal, Kyle, OG, you know, we need to, we need to play the possession to win them, and it'll move around night to night on who's doing what, I think. Uh, as per usual for Nick Nurse, Zacharias writes in and says, Tim and friends, uh, the laugh of Jesse Rubinoff is becoming a must-have every episode. Mr. Giggles. Oh, now i got to turn red right before I come on? Well, that's, that's one way to introduce <laughs> Jesse Rubinoff, digital <laughs> producer, after Nick Nurse. Appreciate that very much. <laughs> do you? Yeah, I do. Right, I do. Yeah. I appreciate the love. Uh, so we, uh, the NBA trade deadline is a week from today. Yeah. It, like, Coming on us. Really fast. Uh, so we asked the poll about an hour ago that said, uh, what should the Raptors do at the NBA trade, de- trade deadline? Mm-hmm. Simple enough. 
And this is a little sad to me, Tivy, because 66% say sell. And if the Raptors do in fact sell, then this run of glory that they've had over the last number of years, including a championship, it's done. Well, For at least a year. I think you might be a tad presumptuous there. You're saying Kyle Lowry's going. Maybe. Maybe it's Norman Powell and Kyle Lowry. What if it's just Norman Powell? Do you feel the same way? It depends what they bring back. Because in their current iteration with this roster, I mean, we talked about it a couple days ago. The big men up front, they're lacking something there. And if I, they can't get someone, I'm not sure this team is better than the team that lost to the Celtics last year. It's not. It's not, and that might be the point. It's This is really interesting to me because Norm's a piece of the culture, but if you're not going to pay him what he'll get on the open market, do you have to go out and get assets for Norm? Like, if he's going to leave regardless, he has never been hotter than he is right now. Now, if you think that he can contribute long-term, keep the man. Pay the man. I just don't know that Masai Ujiri and Bobby Webster feel that way. It's whether he's valuable enough in the playoffs that he's going to make a difference. And if you hang on to him, he's that step that you need to get further than you did last year. See, you're talking about playoffs. I don't know how many of those people who tweeted in to sell are talking playoffs. Why don't we ask? Well, we ask. Why don't we see? Mm -hmm. So Adam says that there's a deal that can improve this season without hindering future or cap space. Do it. Otherwise, let the team be. Hashtag Tim and friends. Okay. So he's a stand pat. Mm Mm-hmm. Brad says, go get Drummond. This one's very interesting. They had one of the best records since January before COVID hit. All that was zero rebounding inside presence. So, again, the big men. What do you do with the big men situation? Yeah, if you add a big man, you might be able to win a round or two. You might be able to make some noise. Just, I don't know if you've watched the Nets lately. Yeah, but 15-1 and one in their like, last are you, 16. Are you beating the Nets? And they haven't had the three together. Yeah, it's like, a joke. Whatever. I mean, you play to win the game. You play to compete. And I think the culture that Bobby Webster and Messiah have built is very, very important with how you deal with the rest of this season. Yeah. Like, I don't think you want to give up on anything. That's my point. I think it's a very difficult decision for them, and that's why they get paid why, what they do right. to make that decision. I got one more for you. Just one. All right, get it. All right, last one. Uh, Mike says sell. Sell like they were Jesse Rubinov opening his <laughs> LaMelo Ball NBA top shot, which uh, – Still hasn't been sold. Yeah, hasn't been sold? No, hasn't been sold yet. What are you thinking? I'm leaning sell. But you have to list the price. Is I have to correct? list the price. And, and here's the reason for holding. Okay, I'll just give you the reason quickly for why I would hold. Right. This is technically his rookie card. He is the favorite to win rookie of the year. Yeah. He potentially has all-stars in his future. And really, who knows how good LaMelo Ball can be in the future. He's already averaging, what, not close to triple-double, but yeah. some high numbers. So... If, you're, if you like the trajectory of LaMelo Ball's career, that's the reason to hang on to that. But we are talking NBA Top Shot. This thing right. didn't that's, exist six that's, months ago. That's the so other what am I even talking about That's here? the other trajectory you have to worry about. And to me, it feels a little like Bitcoin, but I, who am I, right? You could have made, yeah. made a lot of money on Bitcoin. So I'll, I'll just step aside you're right about that. and let you we'll deal see. with it. We'll see. Uh, after the break, we'll be joined by one of the best baseball reporters in the business, honorary Canadian, all-around good guy, John Paul Morosi. We'll get his thoughts on the Toronto Blue Jays, plus everything else happening around Major League Baseball. And I'm sure he's going to try and slip in some hockey talk. Done some work for the NHL Network. He likes his hockey. Morosi is the next friend.
It is Tim and Friends across the Sportsnet family of channels, and our next guest has felt like family for much of the past decade or so. Joining us from Ann Arbor, home of the number one seed Michigan Wolverines, amigo, compadre, brethren. However you say friend, he has been one to this show for years. Ladies and gentlemen, John Morazzi. Tim, il piacere tutto mio. Yes, uh my friend but we often talk a little calcio we talk yes. a little baseball a little hockey but little hoops too as you mentioned the top seed of wolverines they barely got there as the top seed i'm a little nervous yeah. isaiah livers injured of course but uh optimistic that they'll at least be able to carry the baton forward now for the big 10 what a strong showing by the big 10 this year oh my we just talked to ken pomeroy about what the big 10 was doing this year and whether or not that would last but let me ask you this i know when you're walking around ann arbor michigan and and you go to dick sports you go to the red robin just off the highway there that the family and i will stop at every once in a while on our way through ann arbor um you're you're the big shot of the city but what where does Jawan howard rank right now Oh, he is, I would say, number one, number yeah. one in town. I would say Juwan Howard is the most popular person in Ann Arbor because when you think about the ecosystem of this town and this university, he has done what Jim Harbaugh was brought back to do in football but has not yet been able yeah. to achieve, which is uh, the, the legend from Michigan to come back and lead the, the school to prominence. And Juwan has done a tremendous job. And it's not just, Tim, about this season, but they have – from what I can tell, one of the very best recruiting classes in the country yeah. coming in next year. So it's been a really nice fusion of styles of play between some of the recruits that were here uh, when John Beeline was the coach to Juwan's just tremendous leadership. So I've been very impressed with him. And I think, too, Tim, you think about guiding young student athletes through this very challenging year. And certainly yeah. Michigan had a bit of a shutdown done a tremendous job yeah without a doubt I, in fact saw him on this uh this little network called uh espen or something like that and jalen rose was talking to juan about all the rumors surrounding him just the pit stop in ann arbor and juan would have none of it he was saying he loves it at michigan it's his dream job and it's so it is so ironic that they brought Harbaugh back with all that glory. And you would have thought that it would have been him that brought them back. And to see Juwan do it so quickly too is unbelievable. It really is. And again, as you point out, he's doing it in the toughest conference in the country. Yeah. And when yeah. you consider the number of number one and number two seeds coming out of this big 10 conference this year, it just tells you what a high level Juwan has been able to coach at. And again, he did all this with that two week or three week pause for athletics uh, throughout uh, the University of Michigan. So when all that happened, it was right as the team was starting to peak. They came back, still had a lot of success after that. And I really think it's the momentum that they've been able to sustain. And Hunter Dickinson, of course, one of the great uh, freshmen in the entire country. And in some ways, Tim, you could say he might be the best freshman big man they've had since uh, Juwan and Chris Weber yeah. themselves back in 1991. Yeah. So 30 years ago, it was the last time maybe they had just that type of a freshman big man uh, to, to have on the club. So it, it's been a lot of fun to watch Michigan play this year and hopefully a, a few more weekends of that, Tim, as we move through All the right. John Paul Morosi's here. And if you don't know John Paul Morosi, the, the reason why I love talking to him, not only multilingual, multi-sports. All right, so we're going to get to baseball here. We're going to talk to some Jay. But listen, I know whenever you come on in our home and native land, you're an honorary Canadian, Morosi. You want to bring, I don't know if you want to bring up the Detroit Red Wings right now, but I know you want to talk some hockey. So feel free, go anywhere you want to go in the hockey world. And I got a feeling it's not Detroit. 
Uh, I appreciate it. Yes, uh, the wings, the rebuild still going <laughs> yes. on, of course, and, and there there is a transition to unify, of course, Michigan hoops and, and Nick Stauskas, of course, Stauskas being a, a great Canadian himself, yes. which I should mention there to kind of bring it back around to to Canada and 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 hockey. I, I think for me, I know the Leaf fans are concerned now. I've I've been able to detect that, Tim, despite my really? my normal rhythms of traveling to Canada mm-hmm. all the time. You know, I watched Saturday night on, on hockey night because that week, of course, as you know, we get CBC here in Michigan. So that's my that's my main base of uh, of following the sport and, and uh, gathering with all of you on, on Saturday evenings. You see that that North Division, it is tough. And I think Winnipeg has shown the last few weeks just how much talent they have. I think getting Stastny back there was really was really a great move. Uh, by the Winnipeg Jets to, to fortify their forward group. And, and you think about Shifley and how he's developed. So the gap is closing. I still think the Leafs at their best are the best team in that division. Uh, maybe some questions about uh, are they really proven in goal, of course, in the, in the playoffs. Of course, you're not proven until you really go out there and show it in the springtime right. and in the early you summer. Until you are. But, uh, yes, but I, I think that Matthews, of course, as we know, he hasn't been fully healthy the last few weeks. I still think it's important to point out he could be the first ever uh, U.S.-born player to win the Rocket Richard Trophy. The last time an American led uh, the NHL in goal scoring was Keith Kachuk, and that was before the trophy actually came into being. So uh, kind of a unique bit of trivia there for those of us south of the border. And and as we start to think about what that U.S. roster could look like a year from now at the Olympics, it's pretty exciting. And as you see it there, the the goal-scoring leaders – um, really across. I mean, that's and I think about all those Canadian teams. It's it's all Canadians there. The top five uh, for Canadian clubs are, of course, uh, Kyle Connor from the University of Michigan as well. So I think that, that that North Division has been so much fun for me as as an American hockey fan to be able to to watch on Saturdays and really just tune in to uh, to the division going on up north. In addition to, of course, keeping an eye on things down here and and the wings yes as you point out still uh <laughs> rebuilding still has a bit of distance to go i i trust steve eiserman and i point this out too uh there was a lot of talk when when moritz zider was drafted by the wings that maybe they drafted him before they had to they could have traded down he's played pretty well and, and i think that there's a lot of excitement now about the wings and and how good zider could be they've not really had a strong defensive core probably since number five retired and, and uh, certainly that is uh something that they've got to address before they find a way to advance now to the playoffs, whenever that happens in the next few years. I love how uh, when you when you went to the uh, Matthews Rocket Richard winner, like I was combing the brain, doing the instant trivia in my head, and I immediately went Brett Hall and some of his ridiculous seasons when he was scoring 70 and 80. But nah, it's Kachuk. I love it. I love it. All right, you want to talk some baseball, Morosi? Let's do it. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, this uh, this Toronto Blue Jays team is, listen, it's, it's different this year because – they're not coming home. And to be honest with you, it's been tough on Jays fans because you don't get the same insight on spring training because all of the guys that you and I both know that are normally heading down there to cover it can't. Uh, there's there's COVID protocols in place, and it feels a little bit different. But it hasn't exactly dampened the excitement in Toronto. What are your legit expectations for what the Blue Jays could be this year? I, I think that overall, the ALE's favorite is still the Yankees. They still have the best roster top to bottom. And with the Jays, I am concerned about Nate Pearson. I, I, his inconsistency and, of course, the health issue in spring gives me a lot of pause and a lot of concern about where the Jays' rotation is. But that being said, some other performances from their pitchers have been encouraging. Tyler Chatwood, who always has struggled to throw strikes, 
he has looked quite good. Probably going to be in a swing role for the Jays this year, but he's going to be a very important arm for them this season. Tanner Roark, I think, overall has had in many ways a better-than-expected spring. Robbie Ray, we know his moniker is always effectively wild, uh, but he's been decently effective this spring. So while I'm uh, certainly concerned about Pearson and how that pushes Stripling potentially into more of a consistent starting role to begin the season, I was encouraged by Alec Manoa. I was a little surprised he was sent out earlier today uh, that it happened that quickly for him because I think he really did show some promise, and there's probably an argument to be made that right now, Based on health and performance, you may have even put him ahead of Nate Pearson right now in the overall organizational hierarchy. And certainly Woods Richardson's had a pretty good spring training as well. Of course, he was sent down earlier today yep. as well. So, I, I, Tim, for me, I, I've been encouraged by what I've seen from some spots, but the Pearson injury really looms large for me as, as a point of concern because you see it there. Um, Woods Richardson, of course, as we mentioned, uh, has come on and, and pitched well this spring. It was just sent down. There's not the same level of pitching strength among that group and high level pitching strength in the farm system without Pearson being healthy. And, and at some point, if, if the strategy is let the veterans soak up the early innings, the row arcs and the striplings and matches and, and let them pitch early on and then bring up Manoa and hope that Pearson gets healthy. That That's not a bad plan to be honest, but I, I do think yeah. it's hard to imagine the Jays, hitting their full potential being a playoff team this year, especially in a, in a smaller playoff field than what we saw last season, unless Pearson or Manoa come up and really make a huge impact, at least from late May to June onward. Yeah. There's a lot of question marks up here too, among the fans about that, uh, the starting rotation, the arm depth. And last year they did go out and get uh, Robbie Ray, and they did go out and get Taiwan Walker, so that might be a possibility. And there's also a feeling that maybe, given this offensive firepower that now seems like a pretty damn good lineup, that they might be able to uh, to tread some water here. What do, what do you think the the um, the level of this offense could get to? And are people a little trigger happy given how young it's going to be? I think Tim, this could be one of the best lineups in the American League. Huh. They're that good. And, and when you consider what Vladdy has shown so far this spring, that's been very encouraging. Telez, I think, still has a lot of potential as well. Semyon and Springer adding them to the mix. You still have Teoscar. That is one of the deepest lineups. And even then on that list of prospects, we don't have a chance yet to talk about Alejandro Kirk. I'm sure we will as the hour goes along. But he's someone who is incredibly exciting for the team to have and, and whether he starts with the club, whether he's a, a DH catcher option off the bench, whatever it is, this team has a lot of firepower. And and to me, one of the big storylines has to be the healthy and fit return of Vladdy. That to me is a really exciting development there for the Toronto Blue Jays. Outside of Vladdy, who do you think also has the, the best chance to be among the AL leaders? Actually, we only got about 30 seconds here, Morosi. So I don't want to. I will still say Springer. Yeah. Tim, I would still say Springer. I still think when you look at what George can do, the leadership, he's been there before, the experience, uh, he knows how to get ready for a season, how to lead a team. I'm a big believer in George Springer. Uh, Morosi, the professional. I can put him in the 30 second spot. He's got no problem with it whatsoever. The hard outs coming up. Morosi handles it like a pro. All right. If you're sticking with us, do so on Sportsnet 360. Sportsnet 5.9 of the fan, you're always with it. JP will be with us as well for the rest of the show. 
After the break, we'll have more baseball talk. Anthony Castro Vince of MLB.com. That's coming up. 60 seconds on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Hockey Central now on Sportsnet. Spring is in the air, folks. The season is quickly approaching. Anticipation is building. Confidence is high. I believe in the team. If we go home without without a trophy, that'll be disappointing. A lot of fans are with you, Bo. The front office made good on their promises of aggressiveness in the last couple of years. And now we get to find out if they're the right moves. High fly ball. Goodbye. One pitch to Springer and we're tied again. But exactly how do the Jays stack up against their foes this season? In the AL East, the Rays lost Blake Snell and Charlie Morton, but have Kevin Cash, the reigning AL Manager of the Year. They'll be a tough out. The Yankees still possess serious firepower and a lights-out bullpen. 100 wins isn't a stretch. Are the Red Sox really going to be in the basement again? And the O's, well, let's not worry about them. Point is, the division is going to be tough to conquer. This division has been a real toss-up over the last several seasons, and it's going to be like that another dogfight this year. How about the rest of the AL, you ask? We tell. Remember, we're back to just two wildcard spots, and there's not a shortage of contenders. The White Sox have last year's MVP and a pair of burgeoning young stars as they went out and spent some serious money on pitching. The Twins are becoming very familiar with October, even though... It's usually a quick exit. Francisco Lindor is no longer in Cleveland. What do they look like without their star player? And in the West, Houston lost George Springer. Jose Altuve really struggled last year. Are they still for real? Oakland won this division last season despite their big bats underwhelming. And the Halos still have this guy. So anything can happen with them. It's tough to face these lineups. If all goes according to plan, it's back to playing 162. It's a marathon again and not a sprint. The question is, where do the Blue Jays fit in? J.P. Morosi is still with me. What of those other teams in the American League jump out to you? Because I finished with Mike Trout, and Shohei Otani has been unbelievable in the spring. I don't know if... That can translate. I don't know if he can stay healthy, but it seems like it's wide open in the rest of the American League. Do you have that feeling too? It is. I look at the Central and say the White Sox are the team to beat there. Yeah. But I agree. Out West, we could see a major surprise, and the Angels may well be ready to deliver it. Their rotation this spring is, I think, impressed a lot. They've looked more consistent than I expected they would. Quintana, of course, is there now part of the rotation. And you're right. Otani has been much more impressive in the batter's box than on the mound this spring. He may well have that as his main role offensively for this team. And you consider you've already got Mike Trout. You already have Anthony Rendon. David Fletcher, one of the best players in the game that no one talks about because he almost never swings and misses. That's a really good lineup in a pretty balanced AL West. Uh, The Mariners are not ready to compete yet, I don't think, nor are the Rangers. And so it's a smaller pool of teams really competing for those spots. Uh, And you think about the Astros, I believe they will fall back a little bit without George Springer. Remember, of course, in their situation without Framber Valdez as well, Justin Verlander is still out. Yes, they did add Odorizzi, but I, I think that West is wide open. And then with the Central I would say too that the uh, with the AL Central, 
The Kansas City Royals are a team right now, Tim, that is a really mm. unique team mm. that I believe I could make a big surge up the standings. I love it. Uh, we're, we're trying to add Anthony Castro, Vince, and as soon as he becomes available to us via this technology and stuff, we will bring him into the fray. But talk to me a little bit about the White Sox because Sid and I argued about what the White Sox were. He hated the Tony La Russa hiring. And I said, you've got so much talent there. Just having someone to lead them the right way will give them an opportunity to be the favorites in that division. Like, I, I also feel like they could be the, the boomer bust team of all the American League. They could. And the, the thing with them is they have so much talent. talent. Well, we, yeah. we saw in that beautiful essay that you put together, Tim, the, the montage of the, the young talent there, whether it's Tim Anderson, Eloy Jimenez, Yuan Moncada, who we can't forget about, the reigning MVP, and Jose Abreu. Uh, th- there was a tremendous amount of talent there. And on the pitching side, they added Lance Lynn in that trade with the Texas Rangers. They also get back someone who I saw throw today and look very good, who is Michael Kopech, someone who has not pitched at the major league level in a number of years now, but has elite Noah Syndergaard-esque stuff. And for me, Michael Kopech could be one of the great X factors in baseball. He might start out as a reliever because we're trying to manage his innings, but he is someone who has as dominant uh, a repertoire as we have seen in the game. He's that good. Uh, and so now that he's fully healthy, in a great frame of mind as well, he's someone that I think the White Sox have a lot of high hopes for. Opening day starter is going to be Lucas Giolito, who we saw deliver that no-hitter last season. And I think that overall, yes, the La Russa hire was controversial. I understand why they did it in some way. And I think the key thing is that it it really appears to me, Tim, that the key players on that team speak very fondly about their experience so far this spring. Of course, you know, publicly they're going to say the right things anyway, but it it really does seem that Tony's everyday focus – on valuing each at-bat, each pitch, even in spring training. I'll tell you a quick story. I once saw him in spring training years ago. I asked him at about 10 o'clock in the morning, hey, Tony, how you doing? He said, ask me again in six hours, as in after the game was over, at 4 o'clock on March 7th in spring training. (laughs) He cares that much, Tim, about every single spring training game. Understood. I I feel a little bit like Chevy guy stumbling all over myself at the World Series, but we're going to try and bring in Anthony Castro Vince because I feel like we can hear him. Anthony, if you can hear me, we were just talking about the AL Central. What's your take on what we see in that Central? Because there definitely is some talent in Chicago. Yeah, first of all, I think the technology, it, it tends to limit you to just uh, one Italian-American uh, baseball writer at a time. That's the problem. Uh, hey, hey, mi piace, yeah, mi italiano, okay? Uh, I think. AL Central, is, AL Central is increasingly interesting. I think the floor of the division has been raised by uh, the Royals and Tigers. You know, the Tigers are in a, uh, obviously, more of a transition state uh, than the clubs at the top of the division, but they're starting to get there with their young pitching. The Royals made an effort this winter, which is more than you can say for some other rebuilding quote unquote clubs. Um, so, so they could be, a, I, I think their lineup is, is perhaps a little underrated, but obviously, you know, the division is going to revolve around the white Sox and twins. And I, I think the white Sox have caught the twins, if not surpassed the twins, you, you guys just mentioned all the talent there. Um, the, the twins did not have as dynamic a winter uh, as the white Sox, but you know, that's a club that in the last few years, uh, it's been very good about its pitching development, its pitching plan. Um, they, they have a lot of interesting arms that they could, uh, you know, call up from their system over the course of a season uh, to influence the bullpen in particular. Um, so they're not to be discounted, but I, you know, I'm, I'm buying the White Sox hype. I'm, I'm, I'm like so many other people. I'm, I'm jumping aboard uh, that bandwagon. 
um, because there is, it's just, it's just an, an enormous assemblage of talent. I was doing the other day, I was writing every team's most likely award candidate and the White Sox were one of the hardest teams because they have several MVP, you know, <laughs> possibilities, several guys that, that you could believe in, including Yohan Mankata, who really hasn't come of age quite yet. Uh, and Luis, you know, Robert, uh, as well. Um, they have a couple of rookie of the year candidates, you know, and Andrew Vaughn and, and Nick Madrigal, and they got this loaded front end of the rotation. And now they have this loaded bullpen as well. So I, I think the division is going to run through the South side. All right. So I'm, I'm talking to a couple of Italians here on Tim and friends. And I got to ask you, when you say Luis Robert, like I think in my head, like that's gotta be Luis Robert. Like is, is <laughs> are we, are we doing like, is it really Luis Robert? Literally, that's uh, how in I've my been own told. Head, as I'm saying it, I, I still almost say Robert every time, yeah. and then I always have to stop myself and say, "No, it's Robert." They corrected on us, us on that uh, when he arrived in the big leagues, and I, I think it's, you know, I understand it, but I think it is a little bit of shame because you take some of the flair away from it. Yeah, but so Morosa, you were thinking the same thing too. Like it was Robert, but it's Robert. That's what we're going with. We have been uh, much Scolded. like Anthony. The, the, the biggest thing has been for all of us, of course pronounce the names right and so we always check <laughs> yeah. in advance yeah and i was told much like anthony much like you tim i had a double check are we sure it's not robert no, no. <laughs> luis robert and yes as a rookie of the year voter this past year i gave him a lot of consideration as well before ultimately casting my vote for kyle lewis all right uh let's get back to anthony for a split second here if we look at the national league anthony do you believe that it is the west that will be won uh, or that will win uh, the National League when all is said and done. It just seems like so much power in L.A. and San Diego. You know, it seems that way. I, that, that's that's the easy uh, way out, I guess, Tim. Yeah. But I do think I think we're overlooking the Braves a little bit uh, yeah. in in that mix. You know, they they are the the three time defending division champions for a reason. Um, and you know, speaking of MVP candidates, I mean, they got a couple themselves and Freddie Freeman and Ronald Acuna yep. Jr. and um, they're pretty strong uh, in the pitching standpoint. They did not have a good rotation last season. I think they've addressed that pretty well this winter and have a lot of internal upside with their young arms. Uh, and then, of course, the Mets, who, uh, you know, I always uh, am hesitant to uh, get on board the Mets bandwagon just because <laughs> they're the Mets and things happen. Because you're, you're supposed to learn New York from Mets. history, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But but I, I think just in general, though, the NL East is really fascinating to me because I mean, those those are five teams all legitimately going for it this year. Now, the Marlins might be, regardless of what happened last season where they got in the shortened season and performed so well in, in seven-inning doubleheaders, um, they, they might be a, a step away uh, from the other clubs in terms of actually contending this year. But I, I think it's just going to be a tough division night in and night out. And I think that's going to benefit whoever ultimately comes out of it with the division title when they get to October. I think they'll be pretty well battle-tested. And not to say that the Dodgers and Padres won't, but uh, their tests will be against each other 19 times. The rest of the division there is a little suspect. I feel like a bad Canadian overlooking Alex Anthopoulos in Atlanta and Freddie Freeman in Atlanta. But uh, our honorary Canadian, which Morosi is these days, uh, what do you see in the National League and how it's breaking down? Well, actually, there's one team that I really have my eye on, and that's the Marlins. Anthony referenced them, of course. Uh, they were able to end their playoff drought last year. Their young rotation is one of the very best in the game. And yes, Anthony makes a very good point about all the double headers in which they succeeded last year. But I think that that group, Sixto Sanchez, Sandy Alcantara, Alicia Hernandez, it's Pablo Lopez, also a great pitcher. They really have a lot of young talent with that rotation, which allows them to be aggressive in free agency, similar in some respects to how aggressive the Jays were last year. 
I think they'll be that aggressive this coming winter and maybe even at the trade deadline this year as well. Uh, I think they have a very unheralded group of position players that still has a lot to offer there. Starling Marte, of course, for a full season. Brian Anderson, who has really come along and emerged as a real mainstay for them in the lineup. So I think they're a team that maybe doesn't have a lot of name brand players on the infield. Of course, Miguel Rojas has really emerged as a leader for them. I look at that club and the solid bullpen they've built. Anthony and Tim, I, I'm a I'm a believer in the Marlins. I believe they're going to find a way to get back to the playoffs, even in that tough division where maybe the Mets finished third. Carlos Carrasco, some tough news for him from a standpoint of his health this spring where he's not really able to get back and, and may not even be able to be ready for opening day. So the, the Mets, the offseason luster for them has worn off a little bit. They still haven't signed Lindor. I, I think this might be the Marlins' year to continue. And actually, after that long drought, how about a streak of playoff appearances? Oh, look out. Look out, Morosi <laughs> jumping on the Marlins bandwagon. I, I can't help but think as you guys rattle off all these kids, like, and baseball seems flush with great young talent. And in this offseason, you know, uh, we saw a, a monster deal in San Diego go to a kid. Uh, we saw Ronald Acuna now seems like a great deal signed by Alex Anthopoulos and the Braves with that. How do you think this plays out in Major League Baseball given all the good young talent and maybe more specifically in Toronto? where they've got a lot of young, talented guys that could be looking for that type of deal. I'm not saying Tatis Jr., but maybe in and around. We'll start with you, Anthony. Do you think this is going to be something that we see a lot in Major League Baseball yep. moving forward? It always seems to come in waves. Uh, there was there was a time where teams were doing a fantastic job locking up their young superstars um, you know, for the long haul. And we kind of got away for it uh, in, in recent years to where uh, you saw more players um, in, intent on exploring their worth, uh, certainly their arbitration worth, which has exploded. But um, but I, I think, you know, maybe the Tatis example, it could be just an extreme outlier, to be honest with you, because that's not a kind of deal that, first of all, every player and, and every team is going to want to do, um, you know, it, it, occupying such a large percentage of his career. I think it's really all going to come down to what the next collective bargaining agreement looks like. A, a big focus of that is going to be how do you adequately, properly compensate players in the first six to seven years of their career? You know, what do we do about service time manipulation, which has obviously been a, a huge talking point here of late, and as is the case every spring. Um, that That's really going to dictate where this goes, you know, and, and what's going to be the right price point both for the player and for the team. What about you, Morozzi? Yeah, Tim, and Anthony makes a lot of great points. I, I do agree that when you consider the CBA talks, and of course the deal is up in December, so it's going to be a big year from a standpoint of off-the-field negotiations. Uh, I think, uh, as I will often say about things, we in baseball need to borrow a page from hockey and, and date our contractual, whether it's free agency or salary arbitration, date it back to the year in which you sign your first contract. And rather than worrying about different dynamics of, of major league service time based on days in the majors, just do it based on relative to uh, when you sign your first contract, your rookie contract, so to speak. So I think to Anthony's point, that's going to be a huge focus going forward. There is a ton of talent. And one thing that certainly as Anthony and I have covered the, the hot stove in recent years we see fewer and fewer of the, the mid-career, slightly above-average player getting paid with that massive long-term payday. Think about someone like Jackie Bradley Jr. In a different time, a different era, he might have gotten a five-year deal. Uh, 
upwards of $15, $16 million a year. That contract just doesn't exist now for the above average player. For the superstar player, for George Springer, it does. But you have to be in that really high-end elite tier to be able to get that deal. And I think as you see the Tatis deal that the Padres signed, one of the reasons, Tim, that it has a chance to work out for the Padres is that unlike the Albert Pujols deal, which finally concludes this year, Albert signed that deal entering, I believe, his age 31 season. Right. And Tatis is still in his early 20s. So right. that deal expires in his mid-30s, which is a much safer zone to be paying that kind of money to a position player. Uh, gentlemen, new show, global pandemic, only a couple people allowed in the studio. But despite our Chevy guy tendencies here with technology and stuff, we were able to get two Italian-Americans on Canadian television <laughs> at the same time. So, molto grazie, compadre. Where are you? Grazie mille. Prego, prego. Grazie mille. Grazie Thank mille, you, prego. Anthony. <laughs> Thank you, guys. All right. Be well. There is Anthony Castro Vince. Uh, listen. Morosi's not going anywhere. He is sticking around. We'll take one last break. Last call up next. Maybe a little Michigan content for my friend John Morosi. Tim and Friends continues on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet 590, the fan. Tim and Friend. Tim and Friends here on Sportsnet. And uh, Dan Ruiz uh, caught me in my tracks. Morosi, he uh, he wrote in, close the slicing doors. And this is an old school uh, Tim and Sid reference to my friend Dino Nuno, who might be Italian, uh, Morosi. And he once told me a story about one of his uh, his family members saying, hey, close the slicing doors in the back. And he meant the sliding doors. <laughs> but, you know, some things are lost in translation. So forever, one of my Italian memories, Dino Nuno, close the slicing doors, okay? I, I love that. And I love that, by the way, if, if you go to Montreal, of course, there's yeah. a very unique right. version of Italian spoken by the Italian Montrealers. So that's that's probably like the fourth language I really want to learn. Uh, that's after the one you Spanish, want. Right. Yeah, so after Spanish, Italian, English, I, I want to really capture the Montreal version of Italian. Yeah. Frictalian. <laughs> Half French, half Italian. Uh, John Paul Morosi joining us from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Jesse Rubinoff, our digital producer, coming in with last call. Uh, John Paul, this is where he asks us questions. We give him answers as quickly as we can. Five minutes remaining. Rubinoff, take it away. Mr. Morosi is a versatile man, so why don't we start with basketball. Last night during the Clippers-Mavericks game, Jeff Van Gundy's cat, what? Nietzsche, <laughs> made an appearance on the broadcast. John, most television people have spent a year broadcasting from home, Tim included. What's the best or worst thing you've experienced? Oh, great question. I have had my daughters actually 10 feet away from me right now. I have a door that I had to get a lock because <laughs> they would frequently come in here. And I keep beside me, true story, right in this room, a box of fruit snacks. So when they when they try to infringe on a live shot, I just sort of toss the fruit snacks in their direction. They are gobbled up and then they leave. Veteran move, veteran. I, I got to tell you this. Um, I never really brought it up on the show, maybe once or twice, but every Tuesday I was doing the show from the basement and my daughter had a Zoom tap dance class on top of my head every Tuesday during the show. <laughs> and it was the most ridiculous thing that I've ever dealt with in my professional career 
But it's a pandemic and everyone had to deal with certain things. And mine was a tap Zoom class That's on top good. of my That's head. That's a good one. That's a good one. One of the best uh, professional bowlers of all time is retiring. Pete Weber. What? Tied for second in PBA history no. with 10 major titles is the only player to win the U.S. Open five times, but he's best known, of course, for this. Strike to claim it. A strike to claim it. And he got it! The so damn good. it right at the end is so underrated, too. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Uh, if you thought Weber's trash talk was great there, and of course, you know, we all do, check out the interview he did with FS1 no. after he announced his retirement. No. Let's check it out. Who's your, your biggest, your best, your funnest win ever? You know, the, uh, the probably the best win I ever had was winning the Tournament of Champions in 87. But winning my fifth U.S. Open by a pin, throwing a strike to win. Who do you think you are? I am, and that's right. I am. Sorry. I just had to say that. So the question, Tim, is who do you think you are? I am. I still don't know. <laughs> I Rosie, do you have any idea what the bleep he's talking about when he's... But it's... Are you kidding? That's right. Who do you think you are? I am. Do you have any idea what this man is talking about? Um... You know, bowling bowling jargon is rather unique, uh, and and I do come from a bowling town, Bay City, oh, nice. Michigan. Nice. Uh, we are known for our bowling in in Bay City. Uh, the Bay City Rollers, of right. course, not not known for bowling context, but that is uh, that is the name of the, the town. I, I would say this: th that might have been, as all great athletes do, Tim and Jesse, they they, they do psych themselves up mm -hmm. into into. It could be someone from second grade right. who once said, I can be better than you at X playground game. Right. And and that is still him to this day. That's what we do before the show. That's, Psych ourselves up. Is that the best piece <laughs> of trash talk in the history of sports? Yeah, it's up there. I got one more for you quickly. Okay. Uh, Disney Plus is doing a spinoff of the Mighty Ducks called Mighty Ducks Game Changers. And one episode will feature some of the original cast from the movies. And they released this picture. Guys, I mean, how old does this picture make us all feel? Oh my gosh, Fulton Reed! Fulton Reed still has a great shot from the point. You know, again, international travel is hard. Consider bringing in Fulton Reed to show up the blue line here at the trade deadline. Kyle Dubas, get on it. Another thing I still don't understand is how Iceland had the greatest team in the world in the stall, original baby. just because it's made out of ice uh jp <laughs> this was fun thank you very much for doing it love it thanks so much tim i really appreciate it uh there is john <laughs> paul morosi from his home hammering it home love it jp that does it for us we wrap up the week with jamie campbell and justin Bourne. thanks for watching talk to you tomorrow